This truly has been such a wonderful day today and to enjoy such a wonderful meal. And we express appreciation to all those who prepared a meal for today. And again, Teresa and I are very thankful for the gift that you have given to us, that uh, we have made the milestone of being here 10 years. And the plaque is over out there on the uh, foyer and there's a card out there and we would like for you to be able to sign that if you weren't able to sign it this afternoon. But we appreciate it very much. We're looking forward to another 10 years, if Lord willing. And uh, as Joe had said earlier, maybe even another 10 after that, but I don't know. <laughs> but uh, we'll try. And so again, we're so thankful for you. We love you all and we thank you for all that you've done for us. We've been looking at the book of Psalms and they are very special and dear to me in a lot of ways. Not all of them are meaningful to you and me, but I have personally grown because of my study in these books that we have studied or in these particular Psalms that we have studied. Uh, we looked at Psalm 130, a Psalm of prayer when we was to draw near to God. We looked at, at Psalm 103, which was a psalm of praise when we are to praise the Lord. And this morning we looked at Psalm 23, a, a shepherd psalm. It was a psalm of promise and protection. The Lord is my shepherd. But tonight I want us to look at Psalm 32, which is a psalm of pardon. And I want us to spend just a few moments before we dismiss tonight, studying that beautiful 32nd Psalm that was penned by the beloved King David. Now this word pardon is really one of, that I can remember back to my childhood, that I'm sure that I remember hearing preachers preach about pardon or forgiveness of sins. But the word pardon became a term in the political significance or a national significance back in the 1970s because of some of the most notable pardons that were given by the president of that time. And so the news would be on and we would hear this word pardon. Someone being pardoned for the possibility of committing a, a crime. And the first time that I can recall that that was in the early 1970s, when the first time in U.S. history that a president had resigned. We're talking about Richard M. Nixon. He resigned from office and then his successor, President Gerald Ford, had offered a pardon for him. If President Nixon committed any crimes, he would not have to undergo any trial. He would receive an executive pardon. Now we know what happens when any of these pardons that are extended by a president, we realize that there is great controversy that surrounds it, doesn't it? And some, for example, might say, well, President Ford is right and we need to move on and we need to put this behind us. And the best way to do that is just pardon the former president. Let him get on with his life. And as a nation, we need to move forward. But others would say, no. The man committed a crime, 
He needs to be held accountable for that crime. And so we find great controversy that surrounds that. And then the years after that, there was a, a young lady named Patty Hearst. You might remember her name, who was pardoned by then President Jimmy Carter in 1979. But there was a lot of controversy surrounding that particular pardon because Patty Hearst was the heiress of a new newspaper empire by her father, William Randolph Hearst. And so she was kidnapped in 1974 by a terrorist group and they held her hostage for quite some time. But then there was a video that came out of her being engaged in crimes with this terrorist group. Some said that she's part of them, she's guilty. Others said no, they brainwashed her, they took her against her will and forced her and made her do those things. Well, in 1976, she was sentenced to seven years in prison and it was President Carter's decision to commute her sentence, which resulted in her being released after serving only a two-year sentence. In 2001, as he was leaving the office, President Bill Clinton of that time officially pardoned hers, but again, very controversial. Down through history, we've had presidents who have taken advantage of this authority that they have of issuing pardons, but it always comes with this bunch of controversy. But tonight, I want us to look at something that is totally different. I understand that there are some probably that should receive a pardon, then then sometimes a person perhaps should not receive a pardon. But I would tell you this, that this pardon that we're talking about this evening, none of us deserve it, but it's granted. And that for we are very, very thankful. King David needed to receive a divine pardon for a very heinous crime that he had done in the very sight of Almighty, as we were talking about even this morning in class and this morning's sermon as well, that we can't hide from God. We might think we're hiding from man, but God sees all. And so he did this in the very sight of the Almighty God. And the background of this psalm is 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and you know the story. You know the story that King David, the man who at one time had been identified as a man that was after God's own heart, had sinned very grievously in the very sight of God and man. This man sought after a very beautiful woman by the name of Bathsheba, and he had her brought to the palace, and there he engaged in adultery with this woman. He then sent her back home, and King David therefore wanted to put this all behind him. He engaged in a sinful act, but who knows about it? Well, nobody. But God. Right? The one who knew about it was the one that he was held accountable and that was God himself. I don't know what overcame David. If he really thought as the king that he could get by with this because of that power and prestige that he had within him as being the king. 
that he had a right to do this or most likely whatever King David is what overcomes a lot of men. He became very lustful in his heart. But he looked upon this beautiful woman and instead of leaving the scene and going back to his business or maybe praying diligently that he would be able to overcome this temptation that was right before him, he fell headlong in sin, didn't he? And he tried to do what? Cover it up. He tried to cover it up. And that's where the problem really did begin. Bathsheba finally lets him know that she's expecting a child. And it's yours, King David. He knows it's his. Because her very noble husband, Uriah, had been out on the battlefield. David, instead of being the leader that he should have been, was there relaxing and reclining on the rooftop when he saw Bathsheba. When he committed that grievous sin, not just against Bathsheba, not just against himself, and not, but against Uriah, but against his family, and likewise the people, and also God himself. And so David tries to keep this quiet. And so he brings Uriah back to his house. But the noble Uriah would not go into his wife. And so finally David would have Uriah killed at the front of the battlefield. Now surely then he has covered his tracks. Everything will be okay then. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11 we can read how that the thing that David did had greatly displeased the Lord. The Lord still knew about, and later God would send his man Nathan, Nathan the prophet, to King David. And even though the King David was in a position of influence and power, he was still the king of God's people. The king of God's people that could not just be pushed under the rug. And so Nathan the prophet was sent to King David and he told the story to bring to his conscience, to be able to bring to his memories, to his mind of what had resulted earlier. And so King David understood the story that was told by Nathan the prophet about the little ewe lamb and that he was the one who was guilty, that he was really the point of the story and so King David fortunately confessed his sin he realized when Nathan looked him in the eye and said thou art the man thou art the man you're the one that the story is talking about you took something that did not belong to you you're the one that I'm talking about and when he did that he repented That's all there was left to do. Sometimes we get in a situation where all that we can do is travel that difficult pathway called repentance. But that's the pathway we have to trod if we're going to get right with God. And here is the beautiful confession of King David as he thinks about his sin and acknowledges it. He recognizes he recognizes that he has received a significant pardon from on high. Look at Psalm 32 and verse 1. 
Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. When a man has been pardoned from his sin, there is contentment. That's our first point. There is contentment. Blessed is such a man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity and whose spirit there is no guile. Blessed. Happy is such a one. Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount about certain beatitudes, attitudes that we ought to be throughout our lives. And he says, happy or blessed is the man that doeth these things there in Matthew 5 the things that Jesus said we ought to do that are rather indifferent to the world they don't understand it but we understand it blessed is the one for example who mourns over his sins Jesus said he'll have mercy he'll be comforted and so blessed is this one happy is the one whose transgressions is forgiven. And these words here that are used are interesting to understand. That word transgression, for example, is that which is rebellion against God's rightful authority. Transgression. But the psalmist said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now keep in mind that the reason that God had forgave these transgressions is because God is merciful. But there are some things that God would rather do than other things. For example, I believe that God would rather forgive sin than to exact judgment based on that sin. James 2.13, his mercy rejoiceth against judgment. So if I'm... If, so if in an understanding God and you know something about his character, then you'll know that it, it is God's desire to pardon. That God would rather forgive you of your sin to, rather than to exact a judgment based on that sin. If only we will put ourselves in a position whereby he can forgive us. That's very important. But he forgives transgressions. Transgression, denying God's rightful authority or his ownership in my life. That's what happened at the beginning of time, isn't it? When Adam had gave the allegiance that rightfully belonged to God and willfully and deliberately gave it to the devil. To the one to whom it did not belong. And therefore he transgressed God's law. Transgression. 1 John 3, 4, we find that sin is a transgression of the law. That is, going against that which God has said is right. When we read that word forgive, very interesting word as well. What does that mean? That he has lifted something off our shoulders. That he has carried something away, something far away from us. As the psalmist would state in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, right? He forgives us our transgressions. He takes them away. 
But then the psalmist said here, the one who's blessed or happy is the one whose sin is covered. Didn't he say that? But what is sin? But a failure to keep and to live up to God's particular standard, his rightful authority. Uh, we sometimes say it's missing the mark, right? God has set a particular standard for us to follow. When we fall short of that, what have we done? We've sinned. We've missed the mark. And thus we put ourselves in need of God's forgiveness. So to cover sin means to conceal it. So that sin will no longer appear. And that's what happens when God forgives. You see, transgression is forgiven. Those sins are then carried away. And likewise, our sins are then covered up. Covered. And that which covers our sins, 1 John 1, 7-9, is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. But then he also says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. God imputeth not iniquity. Iniquity. All that is wicked and vile in the sight of God. Blessed is that man that God does not impute iniquity. No, we know that there are a whole lot of crimes that are being committed today against the God of heaven and really against humanity. And that they are very vile and wicked and evil in nature. But when we read this word imputeth, imputeth not, that means that God does not charge up certain sins to the account of some individuals. Well, who could that be? Well, we go over to Romans chapter 4 and we notice that Paul, in that particular passage, quotes David when he's speaking about the faith of Abraham. And in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 2, he says, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Then you look at verse 6. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. You see, there's our word, impute. And so someone asked the question, are you saying that there is a man out there who God does not mark up sin against? I didn't say that. That's what David said. And that's what Paul said. Two men who by experience understood exactly what that meant. Who is the one that God will not impute iniquity? It is the one whose transgression has been forgiven. It is the one whose sins have been covered. They are not held against him anymore. And isn't that the good news of the gospel of Christ? Yes, it is. Blessed is such a man that when God looks upon him, he is forgiven. He is cleansed. He is justified in the sight of the Almighty. So we find in the opening verses of Psalm 32, the contentment of a pardoned man. But there's something else that we need to notice here in this passage, and that's the confession of the pardoned man. 
Look at verse 3 of Psalm 32. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned to the uh, draft of summer. I drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Oh, the pitiful poet in this particular passage. He says, I must confess my sins before God. Now, it was Nathan who convinced him, right? That he needed to confess these sins. And he says, I'm convinced that prior to this, that David had many long nights that he was thinking about this. Those, there are those who refuse to confess sin, who know that's exactly what they should do, but they don't do it. And guess what? The results are miserable. The, the results are miserable. David says, I can't even sleep at night. And, know now, and I know now why I have not been able to sleep. Because he was guilty before God. Nathan brought David to the point that David said, you know, I've got to, I've got to confess this before God. I, 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 my conscience won't allow me to be able to sleep at night. Until I do. There very well could be dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. A reason that you're not able to sleep. A reason that you can't be positive and optimistic. And it may be because there's unconfessed sin in your life. We need to confess it. David, he could pray to God. He was God's child. But he was far from him when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And it remained far from him until he confessed his sin. And so I think probably there are, were several ways that he tried to overcome his sense of guilt. There are many today who, who try to overcome guilt in various ways. Some will just deny it. The things that take place in their lives, they just try to deny it. Ah, whatever, right? Others were trying to hide their sins. Trying to cover them up in some way. Like, like, well, if nobody sees it, nobody knows about it, it ain't going to matter. Yes, they do. God does. And David says it's like a rottening bones. My unconfessed sins make me feel as if my bones are rotting. The grave of his sin robbed him of his strength. And not only that, in verse 4, he says, I feel the heavy hand of God upon me, for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. What is that? That's that guilty conscience, isn't it? You see, there are some who engage in that which is wicked and vile and evil and have no problem whatsoever sleeping at night because they really do not have God in their consciences different for you and me because the word of God is in us the seed is there and it causes us to discern to distinguish between the good and the evil the right and the wrong and when I go against my conscience I can't sleep at night there was a husband and wife Christine and 
Rayburn Henderson up there on the mountain in North Alabama that just, Christine just could not understand how Rayburn could sleep at night. He, I mean, as soon as his head hit the pillow, he, he, would, he would just be fast asleep. And when she asked him about that, he said, well, it's because I, I have a good and clear conscience. <laughs> like as if she didn't, you know. She, she, might, she, she, didn't, she didn't like hearing that. And it, it was because she had insomnia many times. But here's David, I believe, had many restless nights because of his sin and because of his refusal to take that to God and to seek forgiveness. And not only that, his vitality was sapped because he said, notice, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Here is a man in a very pathetic state simply because he will not acknowledge his sin and confess his sin unto the God of heaven. I don't know why he would not do that, but I do know this, that when a child of God is burdened with unconfessed sin, he becomes one of the most miserable people on the face of the earth until he confesses it. At this particular time in his life, before he confessed his sin, David was miserable. What did he have to do? Well, look at verse 5. He said, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. That's right. Oh, what a release that is. That is the acknowledgement of sin. David had to confess the fact of his sin. Somebody said, well, what if there's a sin in my past and I, I never took it to God and, and I can't remember what it is? Well, pray that way. I mean, give it to God. Lord, no doubt there are things in my past I can't remember where I have offended you. Please forgive me. What if I can't remember what it is? Then name it. I mean, if you can remember what it is, then name it. David named it. He said, I know exactly what it is that has hindered my relationship with you, God Almighty. I acknowledge my sin ever before you. If we say we have no sin, John says, we deceive ourselves and truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. We need to be very careful that we don't become self-righteous and be able to point out all the faults of others without seeing our own. I need to remember that message as well. Let's be able to acknowledge our own personal sins. And that's what David did. You see, some sins we commit are in our own minds. I don't have to go confessing those sins to everybody else. But I can confess it to the one who is in heaven who knows it. And I need to take it before him. The one who knows him. So everybody doesn't know the sin you perhaps have committed, but God does. And what David did, he tried to keep it hidden from others, and maybe many did not know what he had done, but God did, and therefore he acknowledged his sin before God. Not only was there an acknowledgement, but there was an uncovering. Look at verse 5 again. I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. 
David chose not to conceal or hide anything from the Lord any longer. What did Adam do when he sinned? Well, he tried to run from God, right? What did Jonah do when he would not do what God had told him to do? He tried to run from God, but it didn't work, did it? No. And so here is David acknowledging this sin and uncovering them. Here they are, Lord, and I lay these out just before you who knows everything. And God says, I already knew. I already knew, but I was just waiting for you to acknowledge it. Have you thought about that? It might be an unconfessed sin in your life, and God, he already knows. But he's waiting for you to acknowledge that sin before him. Sometimes we as parents are like this. We, we know the crime is committed, but isn't it sweet to know that when that child will come to us without us having to urge them to repentance or urge them to confess it with tears in their eyes and say, here's what I did. Here's what I did. I like to hear a child be truthful. Don't you? And God loves to hear his children be truthful as well. To be honest, don't try to hide it. He acknowledges his sin and there was an uncovering of the sin and a confession was made. And David says, you know, Nathan's right. I am the one to blame. Against thee and thee only, David would write, I have sinned against God. All sin ultimately is against God. And therefore he confessed it as so and he asked God to forgive him. Why didn't he just do that in the first place? Why don't we just do that in the first place? You see, we can put our, uh, ourselves in his shoes. You know, when is, when is the best time to confess sin? Right after we did it. That's the best time. Sure, we understand that if, if we can avoid sin, that's wonderful, but sometimes we sin. And if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sometimes we do. Here we see the importance of confessing our sins quickly. Don't put it off. To stay in proper fellowship with God. He might have said, I'm going to wait until God cools down. Cool down a little bit? Wait for God to cool down? It doesn't work that way with God, right? I don't think God has to cool down. His temperate is always the same. But God also remembers, and he does not have a faulty memory. I can remember when I was a boy hearing my mother in the privacy of our home speak about, discussed about a certain lady that was in town. And she said that she went into another home and disrupted that home. And she took that husband away from that legitimate wife. And my mother was not saying that the man did not have a role to play in that, but that she had little respect for that woman because she, she disrupted that home. This woman and this man would then marry and have their own children. Some years later, I remember hearing my mother say, I can't believe this, but this year, she's mother of the year. But that's not right. Everybody had forgotten, hadn't they? Over that period of time. They put that in the past. 
So what? She messed up a home. So what? She took a man from his legitimate first wife. That past, we've forgotten. But I learned even then that God hasn't forgotten. God hasn't forgotten. And if she is still in that relationship today, it's just as fresh on God's mind as it was back then. David could have thought, but his sin was always on record. And until he acknowledged his sin, God could not forgive him. Satan is clever, though. <laughs> Satan can put a guilty trip on people. That's different from the guilt trip that God puts on people. When God makes us feel guilty, it's to push us toward him. To make things right. Satan says, you see what you've done? Satan does not mind saying to any of us that God is holy. Oh, you can never please him. You better just forget God. Don't think that you could ever receive forgiveness from a holy God. You see the guilt trip that the Satan puts on us? But you see, the truth is, is that we can receive forgiveness. The truth is that God wants to confess, wants us to confess our sin. He perhaps wants us to acknowledge our sin more th than we desire to acknowledge it. Because he knows. He knows what he'll do when we confess it. And as his children, he'll forgive us. And he anxiously, anxiously, anxiously waits to forgive. He's the father of Luke 15. The father of the prodigal who ran away. Every day that man had that boy in his prayers. Every day he looked across that horizon to see if this is the day that his son would return. That he's coming home. And when he did, he ran to meet him. And when he, uh, the only time that you see a picture of God running is to meet the prodigal. It's to meet his lost son. And so quickly, quickly confess your sin when they are committed and seek God's forgiveness. But listen to this marvelous statement found in Isaiah 55 and verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, here it is, for he will abundantly pardon. That's it. David is talking about a glorious pardon here in Psalm 32 that he doesn't deserve. But that God is ready to extend. But now notice something else in this psalm. And let's notice the commitment that David makes. There's the contentment because he made his confession. But then there's that confession which is an acknowledgement. But that confession leads him to make this commitment. And this confession that he makes to the Lord is not one of mere lip service. You see, true penitence is found here in the heart of David. You see, his life was transformed because of God's forgiveness. And here's what happens to a forgiven man. A forgiven man urges others to get right with God. Look at verse 6 of Psalm 32. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. I take from this passage that David says, I'm going to encourage everyone I know to confess their sins and get right with God. Right now. 
In this passage, he recognizes that God's protection. He says in verse 6, Surely in the floods of a great waters, they will not come nigh unto him. He says, now that I'm back in a right relationship with God, I am fully armed, I am fully protected. And he says in verse 9, that he's not like an animal that has to be trained. He says, be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which hath no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. You see, David says that he has learned to behave himself through his awful, awful period of time in his life. Here's a man who's now back on track. And in this psalm, he shouts for joy because of his forgiveness, because of his pardon. And that brings us to the fourth point of the message, that in this glorious pardon, we can see a very great contrast. Verses 10 and 11, the final two verses of Psalm 32. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusted in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. You notice the contrast that he makes there? A contrast between the wicked man and the forgiven man. We can notice over in Proverbs 28, 13, a passage that you might want to write down in the margin of your Bible. But this is something that we need to think about. Proverbs 28, 13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth it and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Either our sins are pardoned in Christ or they are going to be punished in hell, but they are not overlooked. God says... I want to forgive you. I want to offer you a pardon. David confessed his sin. He shows us how to do that. And I'm so glad that he confessed his sin. I'm glad that he confessed his sin because what would have happened had he not confessed his sin? You know what Nathan said to David after David had acknowledged his sin? He said, because of this, you will not die. That's right. That's frightening, isn't it? When you think about it, unconfessed sin leads to death. Because you have confessed your sin, because you have acknowledged your sin, you will no longer die. You're not going to die. If David refused to have done this, he was going to die. And I believe that what Nathan is saying is that had David not acknowledged his sin right there at that moment, that he probably would have died very soon. But physical death comes to those who will not confess their sins, as does spiritual death. Physical and spiritual, the result of sin. Spiritual death comes to all of those who refuse to acknowledge and confess their sins and have their sins forgiven in God's appointed way. And so this is a psalm that offers much peace and it offers much comfort. But there's that contrast that stands so vividly in this particular passage and here's what happens when you don't. I'm so thankful for these great examples and this book of Psalms. All we had to do is just obey the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. He's done so much for us. He came to this earth and lived and died for us and gave us hope. And we're, we're just going to just blow that off like it is, doesn't matter. 
No, we need to believe that Jesus is the Christ. We need to repent of those sins. We need to confess that Jesus is the Christ. And then we need to put the Lord on a baptism for the remission of sins as an alien sinner. But as a child of God, go back and read Psalm 32 and and tell me not that you're not ready to acknowledge your sin, that you're not ready to confess your sin so that you can be right with God once again and be able to go to heaven and be with him in Christ. Because he has showed us how to do it. We need to acknowledge it. We need to confess it. We need to bring it before God. If you're as a child of God, wandered away, why don't you acknowledge that sin, confess it, and be right with God even tonight. Tomorrow may be too late. Won't you come? As together we stand and sing.